God, thank you for today and for the wonder of your creation, for the freedom to worship you in this place and to know you personally and intimately. Truly, God, we take so much uh, for granted each day. Help us to open our eyes and see how loved and taken care of we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so what do you think? I had an Astros t-shirt I was going to wear, and then I announced that we were going to have Astros Day at the story, and someone from Astros ownership called and said, hey, do you have a jersey to wear at Astros Day? And I said, no, no, I don't. (laughs) And they said, well, tell me who your favorite player is. And then I named off like eight players in rapid succession (laughs) because I'm a nine-year-old boy on the inside. And and I got really uh, shaky and trembly and excited. And then uh, this jersey arrived with my name on the back. So... Craig Biggio's number with my name on the back. I may never take it off. Like, this is going to be, you know, some preachers wear the collar and this is my new collar, right? This is every day. I'm I'm super excited. Uh, um, So I'm also excited to share uh, this sermon with you today. This is part five of five. So uh, we're at the end of God Loves Science and Christians Should Too. This is a series of conversations. If you're new here, welcome. By the way, my name is Eric and Giovanna spoke earlier. We're the pastors here at The Story. It's our honor to welcome you here, but if, if this is your first time and you feel like, well, I'm catching part five of five, maybe I'll be lost. I don't think that's the case. I think this sermon will stand on its own and, and will make sense on its own. And really what I'm doing is I'm taking questions I've gotten from people, pushback I've gotten, which has been significant throughout this series from people uh, and addressing it now in terms of what Christians should do in response to the perceived conflict between faith and science, because my case has been throughout the series that there's really no war going on between faith and science, but that doesn't matter that much when you consider that there is a perceived war between faith and science. There, I can say whatever I want to say about how faith and science are compatible. The fact is that the overwhelming majority of people in our culture, I would say especially in a culture like Interloop Houston, are convinced that there is a war or there is incompatibility between faith and science. 68% of millennials in America believe that the two are incompatible, at least partially or completely incompatible. And 56% of all Americans say that uh, the two are incompatible. And so whether or not there is really a war or some incompatibility that exists between faith and science, the truth is most of your friends and neighbors and mine um, believe that to be the case. That the two, that you have to choose, you know, between being smart and being spiritual. That's the, the, the dichotomy that exists. And so the question is, what do we as Christians, what are we going to do about this? And what is it that we as Christians can say, especially when we don't really know all the science there is to know? Um, because we believe that there's a lot at stake here. If on at least the battlefield for the hearts and minds of young Americans, if that's going on and we're losing that battle, the church has been losing that conversation for a generation at least, then we believe there's plenty at stake. There's something to, uh, there's something to fight for here. 
Because if what we believe is true, that people knowing Jesus intimately matters, not just to the individual, but to us as a society, as a city. If we look around the city of Houston and say to ourselves, this city needs Jesus. You ever do that? You ever drive around Houston and go, this city needs Jesus. I do that every day. If you do that, you know there's something at stake here. We Christians need to be able to enter the fray and have something to say that won't just turn people off or perpetuate negative stereotypes about what the church is and who Christians are. We need to, I guess you could call it, have a strategy. We need to know uh, how to address the questions of people who may not be comfortable at a church, may call themselves ag agnostic or, or atheist, may be angry at the church. What do you say? So I've got uh, an idea of five things that I think Christians should say more often in order to heal the divide between, let's call it the divide between faith and science, the divide between the wider culture that's largely scientific or uh, trusting in science and uh, what we believe in the church. So five things. Uh, does that sound good? Yeah. All right. So this is born out of uh, the notion that Christians are anti-intellectual that Christians are argumentative and sheltered. These are the things I hear about Christians. I remember going off to college and my little small town church threw me a going away party. And I remember the sweet old ladies at that party, little Christian ladies saying, don't let them change you, boy. Don't go to college and let them change you. And you know, I'm thinking like, what else is college for than you know, personal transformation? Don't let them change you. And they said the same thing when I went off to seminary. I should have listened that time, by the way. But, um, <laughs> but uh, and then there's one of my old uh, favorite church signs I used to see everywhere. Uh, the idea uh, that if you open your mind too much, your brains will fall out. Um, <laughs> That seems to be uh, at least the perception of what Christians believe about open-mindedness or about scientific intellectual pursuit. I think in response to these ideas, we uh, have five things um, to say. You know, um, I'll wrap up with this, this part, but the, I saw this online the other day. The reputation of Christians, like online Christians, is so negative, uh, and this meme kind of uh, plays that out. It says, arguing with a Christian is like playing chess with a pigeon. No matter how good you are at chess, the pigeon will always knock over the pieces, poop on the board, and then strut around like he won. <laughs> now that's, that's pretty good, right? Like, that's funny. Whether or not you agree with it, that's funny. And I think we as Christians should sit with this for a minute and own it a little bit, and instead of being defensive, we should create an alternative strategy. So you have your study guides. Let's talk about this. Five things Christians should say more often to heal the uh, brokenness between faith and science. Number one is wow. Wow. Y'all say that with me. Wow. We do not say wow enough. I have long felt that Christians have too many words and not enough wonder. Too many facts and not enough fun. That's why I'm so grateful for a church like The Story, where we know how to have fun. I feel like we are a church that's beginning to grasp the importance of this, but I wanted to say it 
anyway. Think about what a wonder life on earth is. Just consider, apart from theology, what an, an impossible miracle it is that you and I exist here on earth. Billions of years after the universe began, somehow over time, here we are, breathing, living, experiencing all the things life has to offer. And we have it pretty good, even relative to the way other humans have lived throughout history. 99% of, 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 of humans who've ever lived would trade places with you and me today. They would kill you to take your place of life in Houston in the 21st century. We have it pretty good. We get to do all of our favorite things. Like that's why they're our favorite things. We get to do them. What's your favorite thing? Tell your neighbor, right? And the person sitting next to you, what's your favorite thing to do is. And just keep it, keep it clean, PG. <laughs> but you get to do that thing. I get to travel. Traveling is my favorite thing. I get to fly in the air over the clouds and look down at cities and towns and landscapes from 30,000 feet high. And we complain about flying when it's the most amazing thing that humans could ever imagine for most of human existence on earth. We get to drive around in cars, our own cars. We get to drive them. And in Houston, you get to drive them as fast as you want. And no one says anything because the only rules that apply, apparently, are the traffic laws of your native country. And everything else is okay. Like, it, it, it's amazing the things we get to do. Over the last month alone, I have eaten food from Korea, Vietnam, China, India, Mexico, Ecuador, and wherever hot dogs come from. <laughs> many, many locations, I imagine, in one, in one little hot dog. But I, uh, it's a wonder. Bacon. Louis C.K., the comedian, says, nothing else matters when you're eating bacon. It doesn't matter who's president when you're eating bacon. Bacon's the only thing that can bring Democrats and Republicans together. Bacon and Jesus are the only things left that can bring Democrats and Republicans together. It's a wonder. The things of life are a miracle. We should wake up every morning and say, wow. We who believe should say, wow, God. What have you done? Wow, God. Why are we worthy of such gifts? Wow. We get up and say, oh, another day. Like a bunch of Eeyores walking around. All my problems. You know, <clears throat> Sometimes I think my problems are the biggest problems anyone's ever faced. And my life is the most important life anyone's ever lived. Moving to Houston has cured me of that a little bit because Houston is a huge place. And I look around and I'm like, okay, when I get self-important, I am one of maybe seven million people in this city. The city is huge. Houston is huge. But then you think, about Houston relative to like the rest of the world. And Houston is not even like top 40 in terms of largest cities in the world. Houston, I think is 44th, 43rd on that list with our little paltry 7 million people. Tokyo has 37 million people in it. There are 42, 43 cities in the world bigger than Houston. Houston's population, as large as it seems to us, only accounts for 0.08%. No, 0.08. Eight one-hundredths of 1%. Eight one-hundredths of 1% 1 of the world's population. The world is huge. 
except when you consider our world compared to the rest of the solar system. Like when you look at Earth compared to other planets, like the planet Jupiter, for instance. This is our tiny little home here compared with Jupiter. And astronomers tell us that you can fit a thousand Earths inside of Jupiter. How small Earth is. How huge is Jupiter? Until you stop and consider Jupiter in relation to the sun. The sun is huge. You can fit a thousand Jupiters inside the sun, which means mathematically you can fit a million Earths inside the sun. How huge is our sun? Until you stop and consider that the sun is one of 200 billion stars in our galaxy. And compared to most of those stars, our sun looks kind of puny, like compared to the V.Y. Canis Majoris, for example. This is our sun here. You can't see it, so they blew it up. And this is our sun compared to the V.Y. Canis Majoris. I'm going to blow your minds for a second. Are you ready? You can fit 8.3 Billion suns inside this star, the V.Y. Canis Majoris. 8.3 billion of our huge sun fits inside the V.Y. Canis Majoris. How enormous must our galaxy be the Milky Way? <clears throat> Until you stop and consider that our galaxy, the Milky Way, is one of at least 100 billion other galaxies, each of which contain an average of 200 billion stars. Wow. And our Milky Way galaxy, in comparison to most of those other galaxies, looks puny. Our Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years end to end. There are galaxies that are a million light years end to end. There's one galaxy that's five and a half million light years end to end. The universe is huge. And I'll stop there because that's all I know. But wow! Say it with me. Wow! Everyone, regardless of what you believe, should stop and say, wow, this is why it's so important for Christians to say, wow, this puts us on equal footing with those we want to engage in conversation. It gives us something in common, a sense of wonder, a sense of refusal to take this wondrous creation, this wondrous life for granted. So when you're having one of those bad days, as you're bound to have, when it's taken 30 minutes for the food to get from the kitchen to your plate at the local Chinese restaurant or whenever the guy you met hasn't texted you back or whenever you feel fat in that dress or whenever you didn't get the job that you wanted, just stop and tell yourself, I am a grain of sand in a grain of sand, on 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 a grain of sand. Wow. Wow is something we should all say. Jesus is giving his final instructions to his disciples before he's arrested in John chapter 15. And you would think he would keep it you know, um, pretty uh, basic. You think he would keep it practical, tell them what to do step by step after he's gone. Instead, he tells them, everything I've done for you, everything I've said to you is so that you will have my joy in you. So that your joy will be complete, 
Christians hear me say, Jesus came to give you joy. Jesus came to make you joyful, to give you a joyful life. And it breaks my heart when I hear non-believing young people describing the church as anything but joyful. They describe us as anti this and anti that. Debbie Downer, you know, always telling you what not to do. Jesus came to give us joy. We should be a joyful people. I don't mean we should be artificially happy like a Stepford church. You've all been to the Stepford churches. They freak you out probably as much as they freak me out. Where Everybody's kind of artificially happy, smiley in your face, start to finish. I'm not saying that. Happiness is different from joy. Happiness is about you. Joy is about the living God in you. Jesus comes to give us joy. The church should be a joyful place where we stop every day to say, wow, how will you live with more wonder this week? That's number one. Number two, let's move on. Number two thing I think Christians should say more often to heal the divide is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 God says, if my people who belong to me will pray, will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear their prayer, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. This is just one of hundreds of biblical verses that refer to confession and repentance. The Bible speaks to confession and repentance constantly, all the time. We know that. The church has also had a lot to say about confessing and repenting. But I think most people would say there's a divide between what the church has said about repentance and confession and what the Bible says about confession and repentance. Because almost without fail, Christians imply that those who need to confess and repent are out there. We in the church say the people that need to come to repentance are those that aren't here yet. That nasty world out there wrapped up in sin and whatever people out there are doing. That's not a biblical view of repentance. Nine times out of 10, literally 90% of the time, the Bible calls people to repentance. It's the people of God who are called to repentance. Nine times out of 10, it is God saying, if my people will turn back to me, if my people who are called by my name, in other words, if the Christians will repent, I will heal their city. If the Christians of Houston will repent, I will heal the city of Houston. It is we who are called to repent. What if we really got that? There's a story in a book called Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller, about a college campus in the Pacific Northwest, a really secular, humanist, kind of liberal campus um, where there were six or seven uh, Christians there. And the small group of Christians decided that they wanted to make Jesus known somehow in the middle of the Renaissance fair. Y'all know Renaissance fairs. They're always beacons of morality and good behavior, <laughs> especially on college campuses. And so they decided, how are we going to make Jesus know that they decided to build a confession booth in the middle of the Renaissance Fair on this college campus. They got permission, they did just that. They erected a structure with two rooms in it, one for the confessor and one for the hearer of the confession. And as they're building this confession booth, they start to get nervous about what a campus full of uh, non-Christians who are mostly drunk and high are gonna do to a group of six Christians saying, come and confess your, si sorry, your sins. And so then as they're building it, one of the Christians says, uh, what if, Instead of people coming to confess, what if, what if we confess to them? 
What if they came in and we began saying, I'm sorry? And when she said that, the, the group of Christians knew this is why God had them building this confession booth in the middle of Renfair. And so that night, uh, people started coming to their confession booth. They painted on the outside of it, confess your sins. And so atheists, agnostic, angry students began coming as a way of mocking religion. They thought it was a joke. They were coming to laugh at the church and the idea of the confession booth. And so they sat down, the first ones, and they said, how does this work? Where do I start? You want to know all the things I've been up to this week at Renfair? And instead, the Christians there began to apologize. I'm sorry. We're sorry for all the ways we've misrepresented the love of God in the world. We're sorry for all the ways we haven't embodied the grace of Jesus in the world. We're sorry for the ways the church has hurt you personally. We're sorry for things in history. We're sorry for the Crusades. We're sorry for the witch trials. We're sorry for the way certain segments of our population today are told they don't belong. And a miracle happened. In the middle of this secular campus, walls began coming down and students began absorbing a message at Renfair that they never imagined being open to absorbing. Why? Because it didn't begin with religion. It didn't begin with dogma. It didn't begin with somebody saying, now come accept all our facts because we know all the truths. It said, it began with, I'm sorry. And it showed this vulnerability that invited conversation. And I can tell you with a lot of confidence that every meaningful conversation I've ever had with someone who fits that description, someone who's been wounded by the church before, began in much the same way. Began with some contrition, began with some humility. And here's why this matters. This is why this point is so important, is because in my experience, nothing in the world creates more atheists and more momentum for atheism than the church does with our tendency toward absolutism, with our tendency toward a little bit of arrogance. Sometimes sometimes we miss the ways that we hurt people and when we hurt them, we let them just slip out the back door and then they go to be evangelists for the other side of that argument. We must begin with humility, with repenting for our own sins. My most meaningful conversations have begun with I am sorry. If it's personal, I'm sorry for what the church did to you. I'm sorry for the time that preacher said your friend who committed suicide has no hope of knowing God in eternity. I'm sorry for the time your dad was sick and they didn't come to visit you from the church. I'm sorry for the time the church said you're not welcome. I'm sorry. When you begin there, when you begin with repentance, just like in 2 Chronicles, if we turn and repent, God will heal not only us, but our land and our city. Number three, I don't know. I don't know. Y'all say that with me. We don't say that in church. Can y'all, y'all not say that in church? I don't know. There you go. It's easy, right? The truth is we don't like saying, I don't know in church. This is supposed to be the place where we figure everything out. We're supposed to have all the answers. 
here, as a pastor, I get challenged on a lot of questions. And honestly, my ego would lead me to want to answer every single question and leave no doubt whatsoever. But again, that's my pride getting in the way. I don't like admitting ignorance. My children love to ask a lot of questions. They are seven and five, and they, they ask questions um, constantly. And I, I don't have all the answers. My son wants to know, you know, why the dinosaurs aren't here anymore? You know, like, why did God take the dinosaurs away before we could play with them? I don't know. Like, I, I wish I could answer. My daughter uh, brought home a mouse the last couple weekends from school. It wasn't one of those uh, mouse crawled in her backpack kind of accidents. It, it was a domesticated mouse from her classroom. Uh, she's in the second grade. They have six mice in the classroom. And uh, last weekend, she brought home the mouse, and she was telling me about this mouse. The name, mouse's name is Shimmer. Shimmer is the mouse's name, and I, uh, I hate that mouse. And uh, she's sitting right there, and she's mad at me. Uh, no, nah, it's a cute mouse. But we had a conversation. Uh, we had a conversation about uh, baby mice. And she wanted to know a couple weeks ago why there are no baby mice in this group of mice at her school, and I said, well, uh, do they stay in the same cage together? And she goes, yeah. And I said, well, do they sleep in the same place together? <laughs> and she goes, uh-huh. I said, well, are they all girls like Shimmer? And she goes, uh-huh. I said, well, there's your problem. That's the answer. Like, that's why there's no baby mice. And I figured we were done. Like, I thought we were moving. Like, your dad is a really smart guy. Uh, you should be thankful. But I heard the wheels turning and uh, tried to change the subject. You know, like, who wants to go to the movies? Like, we had no plans to go to the movies whatsoever. Uh, but then uh, she said, Daddy, why do you need a boy to make a baby? Why do you need a boy to make a baby? And uh, I said, uh, Gio, get in here. <laughs> <laughs> Go ask your mother. You know, that's what you say when you're, when you're stumped, I guess. I could have gotten out of that pretty easily by saying to one of her prior questions, you know, I don't know why there's not any mice uh, in your cage at school, um, but sometimes I want to provide all the answers. And sometimes with more serious questions, I want to do the same, just like all of you do probably. you got friends that don't believe. you got family members that don't believe. You get around the Thanksgiving table, you want to prove something. You want to answer every question? I'm going to tell you, there's questions we can answer. There's some questions we really can't answer satisfactorily. You know, like, there are questions that leave uh, some doubts lingering. And I'm saying that we as Christians should learn to be comfortable um, with those doubts, even if it means we look uh, weak in what we believe. Remember what the gospel's promise is. It's that in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. It's when we allow for vulnerability that God makes himself known even more. And I see this play itself out in very practical ways. When I'm willing to be weak with people and to say, I don't know, I'm not sure, I could be wrong to someone who doesn't believe, that builds trust with them. It helps them to know that I'm wrestling too, that I don't pretend to have all the answers, that I'm in a search for truth as well. And it invites them to come along with me on that journey, uh, that search for truth. And then there's all sorts of conversations that can happen, books you can read and, 
and things you can talk about. Now, I know that there are head shaking in the room. People are writing emails about, uh, to me, you know, complaining about me saying it's okay to doubt. I know the Bible at times make it, makes it seem like doubting is a sin, and you can make that biblical case. We all know the story of Doubting Thomas. Nobody wants to be a Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas got a really bad rap from that story. We'll talk about that another time. However, um, those of you who have that kind of gift of faith, I'm not uh, judging you. I, I respect and admire you. If you have a faith that lends itself to no questions at all, then I, I envy that kind of, of faith you have. But I'm just telling you that for skeptics like me, for people in the real world who are asking real questions, that kind of blind faith can seem a little bit trite sometimes. Sometimes that kind of blind faith can seem shallow um, and, and contrived, um, as if you're afraid of really wrestling with questions. I'm not saying you are. I'm saying that's how uh, it can feel sometimes. And yeah, the Bible says it in various places that we should just believe and, and not doubt and not fear. And I get that. But we also have other stories in the Bible, like the one from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 8, where um, this man's son has been sick, spiritually sick, emotionally sick. He's tried to kill himself on number, uh, a number of occasions. And his father is just broken, heartbroken by his son's struggle. And Jesus comes through town, and the father approaches Jesus and says, Jesus, my son is sick. Look at him. He's, you know, he's, uh, he's dying, God, on the inside. And, and Jesus says, how long has he been this way? He said, he's been his way his whole life. And then he says, Jesus, if you can do anything to help my boy, would you please heal him? And Jesus, in this great sort of comedic moment, Jesus says, if... I'm Jesus, like, if I can do anything to help him. And then Jesus says, all things are possible for those who believe. And then this man, this heartbroken father says, Jesus, I believe. And all the believers said, amen, brother, we believe, amen. And then there's this silence as Jesus stares him down. Jesus knows he's not done talking. And the man says, but help my unbelief. That is to say, Jesus, I believe but I got some questions like what took you so long to come and heal my, my boy? Why was he born this way to begin with? Why did God make him this way? Jesus, I believe, but why does my son want to hurt himself? I believe, but why does my son want to die? I believe, but I've got questions. You see, being open to questions is a wonderful way to connect with people who may not agree with you on everything. What's amazing about the story is that after the man confesses his doubts, what does Jesus do? Does he just walk away and say, how dare you doubt my power? No. Jesus heals the man's son. You see, I think Jesus is strong enough. If he can take the cross, he can take my questions. He can take the doubts of my friends and my neighbors, and he can heal us anyway. And I think the city of Houston, our neighbors need to hear Christians saying, I don't know, more often to the questions and cries of their hearts. And maybe when they hear us saying that, maybe they'll find healing too. Okay, those are the first three. We have two more, and I promise the last two are not as long as the first three. These are very easy, very simple. The fourth one that we need to say more often to heal the divide is I love you. Now, there is a line through this butt right here. You can't really see it, 
But I promise there's a line here. So what we're saying here is I love you with no but. Okay? I love you with no but. All right. So <laughs> I, it, it makes me a little bit crazy when I uh, hear Christians say something like, I love you, but. Because no matter what you say after but is going to cancel out the I love you part. And that's the most important part. If it's like saying I'm not a racist, but you heard somebody say that. And whatever they're going to say next is going to prove what a racist they are. Like if you say I love you, but whatever you say next is going to prove that you don't really love because love is unconditional. Love comes without the strings attached. John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved the world, but the world just couldn't get its act together. You know, for God so loved the world, only if they'll figure it out. No, it says, for God so loved the world, he gave us Jesus to heal our brokenness. And here's what I want to tell you today, church. And you can tweet this if you want. I don't care if you connect me to this. I'm not ashamed of what I'm about to say. But when you say, I love you, but your butt is bigger than your I love you. So next time, leave your big butts at home and just love people the way Jesus loves you. Without condition, without qualifiers, and without the butts. Jesus loves you as you are. Now, he's not going to leave you that way, but he loves you that way. Sometimes we're too quick to say, I love you, but. Fifth and most important. Jesus changed my life. You can say this with words or without. This is the most important thing you can say. Jesus changed my life. Here's why. You can argue till Jesus comes back again. You can argue the facts and prove your point. You can memorize the Bible cover to cover. You can know your Christian apologetics front and back. You can put one of those little Jesus fish on your car. And if you want to up the ante, you can put the Jesus fish that's eating the Darwin fish, you know, and you can, you can, you can post and repost a new C.S. Lewis quote on your Instagram every day for a year and you won't influence one person. You won't reach one heart or change one mind for the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. There is only one thing you have that will ever influence anyone else, and that is your testimony, your story, your witness for how Jesus has changed your life. And there's a room full of stories here today, and we don't talk about it enough. We don't share those stories enough, but there's a room full of stories right here. And you need to know what your story with Jesus is. Some of those are dramatic stories. There's a man in this congregation 
who was swimming in a sea, drowning in a sea of addiction until he surfaced recently and found Jesus. He was spending six hours a day watching lewd things on the internet while his family, his wife and kids were in the next room until Jesus found him and gave him a reason to leave it behind and do something new. You see, he wasn't just some perverted guy doing what guys do. He was medicating a wound only Jesus could heal. And he found Jesus or Jesus found him and healing has begun. That man has a story to tell. There's a woman in this congregation who weeks ago was cutting herself just to feel something because something some person did to her years ago made her feel dead inside. And she wasn't sure she was alive and the cutting made her feel alive until Jesus gave her a new life. There are dramatic stories like that throughout this room. Truth is, most of your stories aren't that dramatic. Most of your stories are not lifetime TV worthy, and mine isn't either. My story boils down to this. I'm a cognitive person. I need things to make sense in my mind before I can accept them in my heart. A Damascus Road miraculous experience would not have worked for me. And my God who knows me knows that about me. And so over time, God laid out little breadcrumbs of clues that led me back to accept in my mind that Jesus is who he said he was. And once I had it in my mind, it moved into my heart. That is a story people need to hear. And you have a story to tell about what Jesus means to you, how life didn't make sense until you understood the power of the cross and the empty tomb and your testimony, your witness, whether you say it with words or without, that's what will influence the lives of those around you, not your arguments. It's good to know your facts, better to know Jesus and your story. The one thing I'll say about your story, I can't tell you how to tell it, I'll just say this. When you tell your story, tell it about Jesus. Don't be afraid to lift up the name of Jesus. There is something mysterious and mystically powerful about the name of Jesus. And when you say it's about Jesus, what you're saying is it's not about religion. It's not about Methodism. It's not about Christianity. It's about a person. God hasn't given us an airtight argument. God has given us an airtight person someone who is dependable and trustworthy through the ages, someone who has stood for 2,000 years in spite of all the church's worst efforts to discredit him at times. Jesus says in uh, the Gospel of Matthew that if you're not ashamed of him before men, then he won't be ashamed of you before his Father in heaven. He will back you up. He will have your back if you proclaim his name to those that you know to those with whom you're in conversation. I'm gonna finish with this. There are people here today, you've called yourself a Christian for years and really you aren't sure. There are other people here who don't know what you are in terms of faith. If you don't have a story to tell about Jesus, I want you to consider that maybe today is the beginning of that story. Maybe today that story gets written Maybe today is the day after years of wrestling and wondering. Maybe today you say, I'm ready. I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. And here's my belief. Is that when you say yes to Jesus, you'll find he's been waiting for you all along, dropping those breadcrumbs for you like he did for me. You'll find that he is ready to be yours and to make you his, to make sense of this life you are living. I pray today 
But there's someone here who will have the courage to say, yes, it's time. Jesus, you're mine. If you make that decision today, here's what I'll ask. Don't go it alone. Let me know. Let Pastor Gio know. Let one of our leaders here at the story know or a trusted friend that that you know. Have coffee with us this week. Let's talk about the decision that you're making and what next steps that there are. Jesus has been waiting all along for this moment. I pray you won't let it pass you by. If you're going to make some kind of a decision like that and you want to let us know on those connect cards, take those out and let us know just what's happening on your heart today. Let us know uh, however you'd like to get involved in the movement that God has going on here. We're going to prepare those uh, cards now. We're going to prepare our offerings and our hosts are going to get in place. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for all the ways you've spoken to us and reached us. And we confess, God, that we have taken things for granted. We confess that we haven't always been the people and the church you call us to be. Help us, God, to live with a sense of wonder and gratitude. Help us to have the courage to represent you, not just with our arguments, but with our stories, the stories our lives are telling. And God, as we give these gifts and make these decisions now, we just ask that you would meet us where you find us, that you would accept us as we are. We are yours. We thank you for being our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.